0: You're listening to a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. And so your book has lots of great things in there, which help us do that. I don't know if you meant it as, a, as one of those or, or whether you just wanted to tell your story. Well, it was a bit of both because just telling
1: stories is not enough. Telling a story is more vanity. Uh, The whole idea is to move this to some action and help young women. You know, I watch television shows, uh, Indian television shows. Uh, They're beginning to change, beginning to change. But there's equal number of shows which show women still in very, very traditional roles, getting sort of pushed around and then very progressive women. So
0: I'm not a family breaker. I love families. I don't want to break up families. I don't want to create an issue. No, I know. I think it's I don't think anyone who's reading your book is going to think that Indra Nui wants to break up families. It's so evident that you care so much. Hello and welcome to On the Record. My guest today is Indra Nui, the former CEO and president of PepsiCo for 13 years. She speaks to us as she's released her new memoir, My Life in Full which documents her life and her career through various top companies like the Boston Consulting Group and ABB, and then finally at PepsiCo from where she retired in 2019. During the course of our 45-minute conversation, Indra Nui is fascinating because she reveals the inside story of what it takes for a woman to be successful at work, to become a CEO, also while dealing with their home life. Now, not everyone wants to do a balancing act, but Indra Nui talks about what it took from her to raise two daughters and also handle her marriage while doing that. All this she reveals in her book and she speaks to us as well. So here's what she revealed about her life and her work And also some of those key issues which face working women today. That of pay parity and of just getting the respect as a woman in the workplace. On this edition of the show, on the record, we have a very special guest. We're joined by Indra Nui, who for the longest time, for more than a decade, was the president and CEO of PepsiCo. And when she became the head of PepsiCo at that time, she was only the 11th woman to head a Fortune 500 company. And the reason why she's speaking with us is because uh, she's on a book tour with her new book, which is the memoir of her life, uh, a life in full. And it is a fantastic book because it talks about it takes us behind the scenes of her entire career giving us great details of what it took to be this successful. So without further ado, I could introduce and talk about it for a long time. Uh, Thank you so much, Indra Nui, for joining us and talking to us about your book and your life. Thank you, Sunitra. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, you know, I must tell you that I have been fascinated, you know, with you and your life and your career. I think like a lot of women, When we first heard you in 2017 talk about your mother and that famous line that you gave, Uh uh, which is what she told you when you became president. I know that you've done so many interviews and everybody just focuses on this. But, you know, the book, what is fascinating is your book actually gave us a greater context to it. It talks about you talk about the fact that, you know, the role that your mother played in helping you raise your daughters. You have two daughters. And the role that she played, how she came over from India, how other relatives also pitched in in helping you raise your daughter. So I have mm-hmm. that context. And I just wanted to ask you, right? at the beginning, because I think when people talk about you, you know, that that line that you gave, it was the first kind of insight that we had of what mm-hmm. a woman's CEO's life is like. Mm-hmm. And what does she think about all this fuss that we're all making about what she said and, you know, you having to explain it all? She's surprised that that
1: line, uh, you know, got as much attention as it did, because she says this as a normal mother would say to A daughter, a mother of those times. So she's like, why is that a big deal? Isn't that normal for everybody to leave their crown in the garage? The only difference is that in the early days, she would say, leave your crown in the garage. Now she says, both both parts of the family, husband and wife should leave their crown in the garage. So she's progressed. So I'm very, very happy that she's now become more modern and more advanced with the time. She says, husband and wife should leave their crown in the garage, come home,
0: and be equal
1: parents when it comes to parenting their kids.
0: That was, of course, the line that uh, just to tell those people who've been living in a cave and they don't know the context that <laughs> she, said to you, she said to you the day you came home to announce your promotion. But, you know, I- I'm really glad to hear it, that, you know, she's progressed as that. I wanted to hear, has your thinking changed as well? Uh, for example, I remember in an earlier interview, you talked about the fact that, you know, women can't have it all. And towards the end of your book, uh, what's interesting is that you talk about things that we're all dealing with right now, working from home, working with flexible hours, um, how things have changed. Do you think in this new world that we're living in right now, with greater flexibility, with uncertainty, that it's become a little easier for uh, women and that they can perhaps now dream to have it all? So
1: I've been thinking a lot about this because I think you've got to think of it in a spectrum. All right. Um, And in the past, what you had is the ideal worker was a man and he went to the office, came back and, you know, that's all he focused on. And the woman focused on everything to do with the home, all the trials and tribulations for the rest of her life. And she was largely an unpaid worker. Then over time, as she got the job, she still went to the job, came back and continued all the household duties. A few men helped, but a large number, you know, contributed a little bit to the household work, but not a lot. What I think is going to happen in the future, my hope is that both husband and wife meet in the middle and that both of them jointly take responsibility for household duties, parenting, and both have the ability to go out and get a paid job. I don't think we're there as yet. I think we're making some progress. It's going to take a while. But I think the biggest thing that needs to change Within the workplace, unconscious bias has to be addressed. Women have to be treated with great respect. We cannot have women being put down or being objectified. And women have to get the same pay for the same job they do. And be viewed as an asset in the company as you view other men and other employees. And so it's very important we change the mindset of people in power. They look at women as a true talent that's contributing to the workplace, so I think there's progress, but we're not there as yet.
0: And, you know, when you talk about women have to be treated with equal respect, I was amazed that even though you were the CEO, even you had people address you as Indra and your colleagues, your male colleagues were being called Mr. So-and-so. Tell us about that. Were there other instances as well? Because I love that in your book because I think all of us, all of us face that women workers who are out there. We, we face that kind of familiarity.
1: And I think that's one of the unfortunate parts. And I think I have two issues with that. One is that the assumption that you can call me Indra and get away with it while you call the others, Mr. And then I worry that the men never stopped and said, call me by my first name or why are you calling me Mr. And calling her uh, Indra. So the men didn't push back and people assumed that it was okay. And sort of, I raised my eyebrows once. It was even worse because once when we were in a uh, immigration line in a country, um, the immigration officer collected everybody's passports, did all the men's passports, and they all went through, and he did mine last because I was the only woman in the group. And none of the men said, hey, she's the CEO. She's got to go through first. And nobody did that. They didn't care that their passports were being processed first. So there were all these subtle acts of discrimination that I faced constantly, constantly. Um, And, you know, sometimes I want to brush it off. Other times I go, why is it so much has changed yet little has changed? So it makes you think about what is it going to take to make large scale change in society only to value women on par with the men. That's all I'm asking for. Just value them equally. And it's going to take a lot of uh, changing of habits and behaviors and thoughts and the eyes of the men in power, because, you know, they control most of the jobs. They
0: have to change how they behave and act. So, Ms. Nui, would you call it out every time while it was happening? Like, uh, would you tell your colleagues that, did you see that? And how, how come you didn't see anything? Or would you, you know, you, you wish you had, and now would you advise others to do so? And if by doing so, would they be labeled as just too tedious?
1: Well, I was in a position of power, so I could call it out. Yeah. But the way I would call it out is I would say, that was interesting. And I would raise one eyebrow Uh, and I'd say, "Um, what were you guys up to when you went through the line early? Were you just relaxing and having fun? I had to wait for a while. (laughs) So things like that, I would say with the right amount of zing, but it got the message across. But if I was not in a position of power and I was always the last in the line versus others who were in the same level as me, I don't know what I would have done. I really don't know what I would have done. So The thing that I want to focus on, this book is not about people who are CEOs because we've gotten there, we can take care of ourselves. It's not for the senior executives. It's for the people who are rising up the ranks, the silent many who are incredibly talented, incredibly smart, and somehow face barriers and tailwinds at every level in their job. If you've managed to power through and get to the top two or three levels of the company, you're on your own. Then you read Cheryl Sandberg and Lean In, but she gives you very good advice about how to lean in and make your voice heard.
0: But it's below the Lean In levels that I'm talking about. For sure, and they need that advice. So, you know, this is about form, the one about what you're addressed as. And perhaps Mm -hmm. some people could just think that, okay, that's not important. But what is very, very crucial and which you raise in your book as well Mm -hmm. is this entire issue which is you know, obsessing people across the world, women across the world, feminists are fighting for, is pay parity. When, you know, when did you first realize that or did you face that yourself? Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that you fought for other people with your HR. Yeah, so uh, when it came to me, somehow this is maybe a
1: mistake that I made, but I didn't know any other way to do it. Um, I just was glad to be in the room of the high-paid people. I was just glad that I'd come from where I did and I'd reached these positions of power and was making a lot of money. And even though I saw other people around me getting getting generous stock option grants, et cetera, somehow I just didn't ask for anything myself. I felt that if I was going to get option grants, special grants, they would give it to me if I deserved it. That was my mistake because in retrospect, I fully deserved it. But when Steve Reinemann became my boss, my predecessor at PepsiCo, he looked at all these numbers and said, oh, my God, I've got to fix all this. And he fixed everything. So he set the example to say, I have to make sure that nobody is discriminated based on gender or ethnicity or whatever. And this is why I asked the question about HR. HR has to act as a true human resources function, not a selective resources function. And if HR, which are largely staffed by women or led by women, do not stand up and be counted, why are they called human resources?
0: I think it's so interesting what you're saying. And I think, sadly, a lot of women, as you're saying, would still do what you did those years ago. And I hope that you inspire them to take up this cause because they would say that, you know, I think sometimes do you agree that, the difference between men and women at the workplace is men, because it's instilled in them, it's a, it's a, you know societal you know conscience that is built up, are just born with the you know confidence that they're great, <laughs> even though they don't deserve to be there. Whereas women are constantly lacking self confidence to de- to demand what they deserve. Well, that and then in in the past, when men have asked for it,
1: they've gotten it. Okay, when they ask for a raise or demand a special grant or an extra bonus, they get it. When women ask for it, it's always viewed as she's pushing, she's too ambitious uh, and all kinds of labels given to her. So I think if there's one thing I would like to do, if I have the opportunity, is address the HR, CHRO community, the Chief Human Resources Officers. I think they can play a profound role in reshaping this whole environment and debate. Clearly, they work for CEOs. So CEOs have to demonstrate tone at the top to be one of inclusiveness. But I think CHROs have got to make this their job to ferret out these issues and address them. And I don't think we're there as yet.
0: The other thing which I loved in the book, because it was enabling, could you tell, uh, you know, those who are listening or reading this interview of yours, uh, that what you mentioned about the perk that you got which came with the job of a CEO, that of the use of the private plane. How it freed you up? Tell us about that.
1: Well, you know, uh, PepsiCo in the U.S., for example, has about 125, 130 manufacturing locations all over the place in small towns. So to get to a place, you've got to go to a big town and drive for an hour and a half or whatever. Our customers are located, you know, like our retail partners in many, many parts of the country. Uh, And... You have to visit state governments, federal governments. Then when you travel overseas, um, you know, I could go to China and be there for five days and visit seven cities. And uh, if you really want to use a CEO's time optimally, if you don't give them the use of a private plane, there is no way that a CEO can have a life because you spend more time in airports and then you're delayed in meetings because if a plane is delayed or you're caught in traffic, it's over. The whole schedule is messed up. The wonderful thing that PepsiCo did is gave CEOs, in fact, gave it to me while I was president, um, the use of the private plane. And that was a liberator because, first of all, I didn't have to pack economically in a suitcase and then sit there ironing clothes in my hotel room, wherever I went. (laughs) Second, I could pack by city. So if I was in China for five days or, you know, in Asia Pacific for 10 days, I could pack by city in separate bags and take out just that bag when I got to the city. Third is, I could be productive. I didn't have to worry about who's looking over my shoulder at my work. I could have meetings on the plane. The the plane was a flying office. People would come on the plane just to hold meetings. Uh, And when one meeting was over, if it was a long flight, that group would go to the back of the plane and the next group would come. So it was a very efficient use of time. And that allowed me to come back home at some reasonable hour and not be Completely wiped out and start working, you know, to help the family, the kids, and spend some quality time with my husband. And so I think the pressures, the incredible pressures of the CEO and so the president and the CEO job, were somewhat addressed by the use of this perk, the availability of this perk. Believe me, um, some people might say it's elitist. It is, but it's a required elitism if you want to run a. billion company with a market cap of $165 billion in 180 countries. And you have to be present. And let's not forget, until the pandemic, we didn't have such a well-developed teleconferencing system. Now we have Zoom and Chime and Team and uh, these streaming devices. Then we didn't. So one had to be present. One had to meet people. uh, And government officials never wanted to interact by teleconference anyway. So... I had to travel, be seen, be seen with employees, talk to them, reach out to them, touch them. It was, uh, it was a great perk to have, but I call it almost a great necessity to be able to run this global far-flung enterprise.
0: And for those who haven't got there yet, I think the lesson from your book is use what you've got. If you've got great neighbors, co-opt them. If you've got wonderful family in India who wouldn't mind taking time off to help you raise your kid, use them right?
1: And use all of these technology tools that are now available. You know, get yourself a fantastic setup, have all of these tools available, have the right lighting, make sure that you're in a quiet place and use these tools to the fullest because there's only one good thing the pandemic did. It accelerated this technology development. And now you and I can talk via a streaming device as opposed to uh, you know, having to go into a studio or having to come to your place in India to talk. We can talk through uh, this particular medium. So I think that we should all redo our lives to see how we can spend a little bit more time at home and leverage all these tools to be able to get
0: our work
1: done at the same time.
0: So, Ms. Noe, there seems to be a little bit of uh, debate about this. Mm -hmm. I know that there are some CEOs and some heads of companies. For example, I heard Reed Hastings of Netflix is insisting that he believes that, you know, FaceTime is important, that people should be back in office. There are others who are just fine with, and, you know, workers who have had, who've been working for one and a half years like this remotely want that flexibility. So I wanted to ask you, Mm -hmm. do you think that if someone chooses, especially women, if they choose flexible hours, can they still hope to rise within the organization? Can you be ambitious, but still do it in your own terms?
1: I think total flexibility working remotely means that you're going to be pigeonholed into a certain job. If you really want to be part of a corporate culture, corporate leadership development and move up, you're going to need face time. There's no question about it. Uh, doing this sort of remote thing doesn't work. See, I'm getting to know you through this call, but I'm not really getting to know you because I haven't even given you a hug or had a handshake. So it's almost like a, um, uh, you know, I'm looking at an avatar of you in a way because I'm doing it via computer. There is tremendous value to -to face-to-face communication. That's how you develop the soft skills, the body language, how you communicate with each other. And I think... Total remote working means you're opting for a different career path. Okay? Even in the tech world, it's a, it's a different career path. It's a very technology-oriented, remote working, so, you know, cocooning career path. If you really want to move up a leadership level, a managerial level, you're going to have to come uh, to the office some days of the week for FaceTime. My fear is that uh, you know we end up with a situation where people come to office Uh, get treated differently than those who don't come in or people who come in five days a week are treated differently than those who come in only two or three days. I think the pendulum has to swing and rest at the right place. We went all remote. Some people are talking about everybody coming back. It's going to settle somewhere in the middle. It's going to take about a year. So let's not rush it. Some people are saying, let's come back. I think they will start to claw back a little bit. But this face-to-face interaction is important if you want to Think about corporate culture, how you're going to transmit it to other people, how you're going to give the office, uh, you know, provide a stress free environment in the office. Because sometimes people in homes go through a lot of stress, and coming to work is a way to sort of let go of that stress and meet the different group of people and have a different adult
0: interaction. We have to enable all that. Too. And thank you so much for being candid about that. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, reading. All your experiences, and you know, you you talk about um, you know your career and bosses and the bosses that you had. You of course mm-hmm. were, as you said, very fortunate that you had people you know who were enabling and who recognised the potential in you um, mm-hmm. and and recognised that. But I wanted to ask you, you do realise, Miss Nui? You know, when when I read that the day after you delivered your baby. That, you know, y- your boss came to see you and instantly pitched an idea, <laughs> a work project, right? And then and then how you had work meetings during your maternity leave um, at home that they moved it. So he was accommodating, that you, but you had them at home. Now, in a way, and, you know, the kind of work culture that you have, you were, of course, a workaholic. Um, I don't know whether you <laughs> embrace that term or not. <laughs> but you know, you, you are. I mean, we're all in awe of the fact because I consider myself... A workaholic. Uh, the first day back for me after my maternity was a 14-hour day, uh-huh. but I took eight months off. I really needed that. It was the first time in my career that I did it, but I needed eight months off. So I wanted to ask you that, you know, these days, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, people who work like you did, or perhaps even the work like uh, I do, uh, is is toxic. It sets the wrong kind of example for other women who, who can't do more than it does. I want to ask you, you know, how do you feel about that? Are you uh, or, you know, women who work like you setting a precedent, which is, you know, because people said that about, uh, you know Cheryl Sandberg as well. You just mentioned her about her leaning in. People said it about her because she came back after her maternity leave very early on as well. You know, is this kind of perpetuating a culture of, you know, Superwoman? You know, there's a
1: pyramid in at work. All right, not everybody can rise to the top. Um, don't say you want to be CEO, but you can't work more than eight hours a day. This doesn't work. I mean, look you come up with tens of thousands of employees and ultimately you pick one, hundreds of thousands of employees and you pick one to be CEO. The rise to the top, the climb to the top is very, very, very difficult. So you've got to decide where you want to go and where you want to head up. And sometimes you don't even plan for it. Who you are gets you to that position. Now, let me say something. My boss who came to see me the day after I gave birth and you know, asked me how I was doing and pitched an idea, First, he was the most supportive boss I've ever had in my life. The most unbelievable individual I've ever worked for. Second, that he came to see me after I had my baby was unbelievable. How many bosses go see their executives after they have a baby? This boss came to see me. I interpreted what he said as, I will not do anything without your input. And he said, look, I know you've had a baby, but your brain is available. Just give your uh, input, you know, just your brain input. I was touched that he was saying, there's nothing I will do without your input. Um, And I felt, uh, contrary to how people might have read the story, I actually felt, my God, you know, he trusts me so much. And now my team said, don't you dare work on this, we'll figure it out. I said, look, my body's had the baby, not my brain, just come to the home and I'll just go feed the baby and I'll take care of the baby. If I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping, but you guys hang around the living room and Keep working. If you have a question, yell it out from there, I'll give you an answer. So to me, it was a seamless integration of work and family, but that was at a different level in the company. When you're in the early levels of a company, in the middle management of a company, these are difficult things to do because your team is not going to come to your house. They're not going to work and just ask you one question every hour. You have to be one of the workers yourself. So Let's just be clear what levels we're talking about. In my entry level, oh, my God, there was nothing like that. I took my three months of maternity leave after I had my first child at BCG. And BCG never interrupted me even once. They said she deserves the three months. And after I came back for a month, they said, take it easy. You've just had a baby via a section that too. We'll give you office projects to do for a, a month so you recover. They were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Don't try to be superwoman. Don't try to be me because I am wired differently. Yeah. Okay, All that I'm saying is, if you want to get to the top, like I did, that's a whole different game. Remember, I write about the race for the CEO, the climb to the CEO is a whole different ballgame. At that point, yeah. all bits are off. Okay, All that we're talking about is entry-level management position to about middle management.
0: Yes. No, it... it really does uh, make sense. And, you know, these are so difficult things to kind of navigate. Um, And, and of course, not only did you have good bosses, you also write about the fact that you had a great partner um, who you're speaking to you from Connecticut. And, you know, you write in the book, how he had a great job offer, and you had to move there and he moved with you. Mm -hmm. So, you know I think I I wanted to ask you what should women do because I was hearing you know th- you know post pandemic there's been so much talk about the fact that women are dropping out of the workforce and this is across the world and it's because there are there are a ton of issues over there it's also because of the fact that the husband just earns more and that's why for childcare and others they just move with the husband mm. so so because of that so I, You know, what happens, you know, you you had a great partner who decided that, you know, your career needs to be uh, supported. What Mm -hmm. do women whose partners, who feel that their partners would resent them, you know, what Mm -hmm. do they do? You know, that's a very personal discussion. And even
1: before you get married, you need to have this conversation as to how is this working together? uh, You know, both of us having jobs going to work. What if one person moved ahead? What if the other person moved ahead? Sometimes you don't move just for the money. You move because it's a better company and a better job, even if you're making less or whatever. And so this is a conversation that husband and wife need to have. And I say this because very often people jump into relationships and marriages and then they regret the fact that they didn't have these conversations before. Now, I'm I'm, I'm making it sound like everybody has the luxury of having these conversations before they get married. Many don't. Or the person they married is one way before they married and then another way after they got married. And then family dynamics come into the picture. But at the end of the day, uh, my hope, my dream is that families are still created, nurtured if you so like families and family creation. But if a woman wants to dream and have a job and thrive in it, she should be able to do that. So find a company that allows you to work flexibly if you have to move and you can't. Make sure you develop skills that allow you to work flexibly. So a lot of the stuff in AI, machine learning, data analytics can be done remotely. So start retooling yourself into those disciplines which require, uh, you know, which can allow you to thrive by working remotely. So this is all about strategies and uh, techniques, to thrive and grow in this new environment. And I think what you're also going to see, there's going to be less transfers going into the future. I think people are going to say, why do I have to transfer this person? Why can't they just work remotely? At the very senior levels, you might see transfers, but in middle management and lower management
0: levels, you're going to see fewer transfers. I really, that's, I, I believe that. Well, that that's going to be a boon for so many women and especially working couples and You know, that's bound to help. Is that one of the I mean, hopefully that should do more for the women workforce that we have in India. Right. The Mm -hmm. fact that I mean, this has to be a concern. Uh, You know, one of the things that you mentioned towards the end of your book, you talk about things which need to be done to encourage more women working and especially in this post pandemic environment. And India seems to tick off all the boxes, the one about uh, maternity leave, six months, Mm -hmm. also family leave. These are some things which are mandated by law over here. Why is it still then that we have the lowest, you know, one of the lowest workforce of women in the workforce, which is less than 25 percent?
1: Well, laws alone are not enough. I think, first of all, when the laws exist, they have to be implemented and action has to be taken by the judiciary to implement the laws. And at the time between an incident happening and action is too long, the laws are useless. So that's the first part. And I'm actually very, very impressed with the caliber of the laws and the number of laws on the books to protect women in India. Yet I don't feel women feel enough protected. So that's a different issue, right? Now let's get to uh, uh, the plight of women. Laws are one slice of what women need. Society needs to evolve and adapt to accept women as equal members. It's not enough that women are getting all the top grades in colleges. Women are graduating from colleges in larger numbers, from professional schools, from universities. It's not enough that women are getting more STEM degrees. Even in engineering, they're large numbers now. India is a knowledge economy. If India doesn't deploy the best and brightest to work in its businesses, and really greases kids to make it work for everybody who's talented to work and thrive, India's going to fall behind in the knowledge economy. I mean, I heard a story from one of the big IT companies that they hired a lot of women in the entry-level positions. By the time they get to level three, a lot of the women have gone. So we have to talk about families. And again, I come back to this point. The discussion on families and women has to become core to the discussions about future of work. In all boardrooms, in all meetings where men of power or people of power collect, we have to talk about this. Because if we start leaking talent and we don't find a way to deploy them in the paid work, we're not going to have the GDP grow as much and we will not have um, talent as a competitive advantage for the country.
0: So the IT company, which incident you were talking about, is it because they just didn't have childcare? And so would the solution be just having an in-office, in-the-building kind of place where you can have your kids taken care of? That is a question we need to ask. I mean, that's a question that I think the
1: next step to this book is, I hope it triggers a series of discussions within India about, you know, what do corporates offer in terms of care? Um, You know, how is this flexible working hybrid working actually going to evolve? I think these are conversations that need to be had. I think there's a whole bunch of innovation that needs to happen within the home. Should you be developing office cubes where people can work in peace without constantly being interrupted? But if you're not interrupted, what happens when the kids need you or the older people in the family need you? So these are all questions that need to be asked and answered. I often think, should neighborhoods have co-working places with childcare? So the childcare is attached to the co-working place as opposed to for you having to take a bus to the office with your child, which doesn't make sense. To me, childcare is better done near your place of residence as opposed to your place of work. What is a mom supposed to do or dad? Take the kid in the train to work and put the kid in a childcare? doesn't work. So I think all this has to be talked about. And my real hope is that all of you who have a, a voice in the media, Convene the right people to say, let's talk about this on TV. It's an issue. Let's talk about it. It's a real issue. This is not a fringe issue that Indra Nooyi has brought up. It's a big issue that's causing a lot of women and families
0: a lot of angst. Let's talk about it. For sure. I'm hoping this interview sets up those kind of conversations as well. Ms. Nui, I I really want you to. There's one bit uh, that I loved in your book. I mean, there are lots of bits, but you uh-huh. know, like you talked about, the, you talked about the chartered planes. I love the fact that, yes, your legacy is PWP, which is uh, performance with a purpose, you know, about reducing uh, plastic usage, about uh, efficient use of water. But one of the things that I liked is uh, you build changing the cobbled pavement leading <laughs> up to the office building. So tell us about that.
1: Well, you know, PepsiCo sits in a beautiful campus here in Purchase, New York, and Uh, You know, there are seven buildings in a sort of a U-shaped structure. So you get off near a flagpole and then you walk up a wonderful cobblestone, you know, big brick cobblestone pathway up to the entry level to the building. And between the cobblestones are big gaps because that's the beauty of the cobblestone. Um, If you're wearing heels, there is no way you can get through the cobblestone pathway without the heel getting caught between the cobblestones or you tiptoe over the stone so that your heel doesn't get caught in. Um, So I did that for a few years. And then when I became president and facilities was reporting to me, I said, I'm going to change this. I'm going to make the entryway flat. I'm going to keep some design aesthetic. The sides can remain cobblestones because nobody's working on the sides. So I'm going to make it easily accessible by women. Now, Don Kendall was the original guy who designed those cobblestones and put that in under his leadership. He loved his cobblestones. So when he saw this new cement walkway going down, and a picture of that walkway is in the book, Um, going down, he was livid. He went to the then CEO and said, who the hell changed my cobblestone parkway? This is unacceptable. And the CEO said, well, not me, it's Indra. You know, facilities reports to her, go talk to her. Don Kendall never talked to me, never talked to me about it. But his wife called me and said, thank you for doing it because I had trouble walking up the walkway and all the other women applauded and said, thank you for doing what you did. So at some point, it's not just talking about gender equality. It's doing the right things to enable people with different abilities, who are different, who dress differently, et cetera, et cetera. Also come into the workplace and say, we welcome you in the workplace. And
0: that strong
1: walkway was indicative of that.
0: Do you think then it's just come to me? It's just a thought that's come to my head. That do you think it's because all the municipal, you know, uh, civic bodies in some of those European cities, which are full of cobblestone roads, they're just full of men. They never have this problem. So if we get women in there, they start thinking like Indranui and most change. Certainly, those.
1: Most certainly, yes. Those days it was all designed in the old times when you know horse carriages went over that. Now things are different. There's a lot of women walking around with heels. Now you can ask the question, why can't you wear flats? Okay, I could. But then you walk in flats and then you change when you get to the office. I don't want to do that. I want to walk in my little heels up the flagpole because that's what all women wore. Those are the shoes that are sold in stores. So, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want to create an environment where it's hard to walk up. I'll be honest with you, men too applauded because they had trouble walking up the walkway. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: when you say I liked walking in my heels, I have to ask you, you know, you talk about the difference hiring a stylist made. Now, I think that's really interesting, even as a gender politics thing, because feminists are always asking, does it matter if I wear makeup? Should there be? And, you know, you talk about the fact that as soon as you hired a stylist and paid attention to what you wore, that People looked at you more, you know, they, they didn't look at whether you look beautiful or not. They just took you more
1: seriously. At least one person said I was intimidating. I don't know that seriously. I tell you, I felt more confident. I'll be honest with you. Um, because prior to that, I did have some clothes that were just, oh, not, not that great. But the clothes were expensive, but I always made them too big. The skirts were too long. They were a little misshapen. And now all of a sudden I saw the power of, Good clothes, shaped well on you. Uh, You know, I was almost shy to have it altered to fit me before. Now I was proud of doing it. Um, I didn't hire a stylist. He hired himself for me. And he did (laughs) as a favor. He said, I'm doing this because I see in you huge potential. But for some reason, your dressing skills don't match your position or your title. I have no idea why I agreed to go to Saks Fifth Avenue with him. I have no idea. I was nervous. I was embarrassed. I was excited. Then after I tried on those clothes and he made me a beautiful catalog, mixing and matching every one of those outfits, with the right jewelry with the bags and shoes, and taught me how to wear those five or seven outfits interchangeably to create 20 different fabulous outfits. And I still carry that around with me. It's in my credenza here so you know some people are angels that come out of nowhere and offer you a helping hand and he did and i listened
0: we all you know we all see the ads about power dressing but it's the first time i'm you know hearing from a real ceo mm-hmm. about what power dressing actually means so thank you for that story final question i could talk to you for, uh, for <laughs> i could go on talking to you but final question i'm sure you have uh you know a lot to do Final question I wanted to ask you was um, that, you know, uh, one of the things, one of the interesting things that I heard, which kind of framed my thinking as a, as a working woman was uh, Simone de Beauvoir's you know, her interview where she says that, you know, you have to, you have to be financially independent, Um, you know, so there's no choice about it. You have to. Now, I wanted to ask you that, you know, where do you stand on this? Because. There are people who say that women should have the freedom. They can be homemakers and, you know, stay home. They can choose to stay home and look after their children. And there's Simone de Beauvoir, which I found really echoed with me, that how can you look after your children if you don't, if you're not financially independent? Where do you stand on this debate, Indranui?
1: Um, Like I said, I believe in families. I believe in choice. I believe people should do what they want to do. However, as I say in chapter one, Families are wonderful, but families are messy and families are fragile. A great family today could become fragile tomorrow because, you know, something happened to the breadwinner or the breadwinner walked out in the family for some reason. And then families start to get messy. What cannot happen is that the woman is cast asunder and left to fend for herself. And she doesn't have the power of the purse because she never worked. or She doesn't have a college degree. It doesn't work. And if she's got kids to take care of, where is she supposed to go? There is nothing in the laws that says the woman has to be supported. And even if the law says that before it's implemented, it takes too long. So I just come back and say to protect the woman, to protect the woman, not only should she be educated, she should have economic and financial freedom so that if there's ever... A problem because families are fragile. She can stand on her own two feet and take care of her kids. Or even if she doesn't have kids, take care of herself. That's my only plea, my request, my expectation.
0: Indranui, thank you so much for speaking to Hindustan Times. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. Very nice to talk to you.
0: And you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, that was a conversation, and that brings us to the end of this episode of On the Record. If you would like to share your views on it, do tweet me at Sunetra C or at HT Smartcast. Send in your feedback, and I'll be back with another episode. So join us then. Goodbye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD HT Smartcast. HD Smartcast.